0: What's up, it's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light,
1: take time to chill. the Hood, follow us on the ground at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago.
0: This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. What's up and welcome in. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the ESPN Chicago app right here on a uh, Thursday night. Open phone lines for you, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776. Is our telephone number? We will be guest free in our number one. We want to get your thoughts on our first subject, which is Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. When I say the name, what comes to mind? Right? You think of all the great shots, game winning shots. Then with the tongue hanging out, him going to the basket. You think about uh, the six championships, all the acclaim. You might even be thinking about the Last Dance documentary because that's the last time we saw Michael Jordan long form. Every Sunday, watching the last dance documentary, that last dance documentary, by the way, that same doc, that blew Lance Armstrong's doc out of the water ratings wise. Do you realize that even today on the 28th of May that Jordan with that documentary had an opportunity to stay relevant? See, we already know his career. Right? We know his major on-court achievements. We know what Jordan has brought to Chicago as far as a sense of pride when it comes to basketball. It's one thing to look at all the great high school players that have played in this state. It's one thing to look at some of the great college moments for college basketball that we've had in the land of Lincoln. But it's another thing to look at the stratosphere that Jordan and the Bulls were on a while ago. And so here in 2020, another opportunity for Jordan to stay relevant. When you're on top of the mountain, people will try to knock you off with a pea shooter or a hand grenade. But either way, where you're on the top of the mountain, people will try to find ways to knock you off that mountain. And so what I knew, and maybe some didn't know before the documentary happened, but what I knew is that I knew that the documentary was going to be compelling to watch. It's going to be interesting to watch the reaction of younger people that did not live the day-to-day of the Chicago Bulls from the beginning like I did in the Jordan era as a kid, watching Jordan all the way to his final championship. But it is interesting that people did not know that Jordan had the creative freedom on this doc. That's the first thing that we heard about. Like, there's going to be a documentary about the Last Dance Bulls pretty much narrated by Michael Jordan. Okay, so this is going to be in Jordan's... From Jordan's viewpoint, um, what Jordan had to say was similar to what he said during his speech at the Hall of Fame that opened up a lot of eyes at the Hall of Fame. I remember being on the air when Michael Jordan had his speech and I'm talking to Cubs and Sox and I look up and I go, oh, it's Michael Jordan's speech because I've always had this issue with the NBA, this whole thing of hey, let's have the Hall of Fame speeches and the Hall of Fame night, like on a Friday night in September in Springfield, Massachusetts, of all places, right? Like, this should have shut down everything. Everybody should have been running the Michael Jordan uh, speech. But nonetheless, when we heard his speech and heard his words, um people are like wow there's a there's some either bitterness or there's an intensity there's something there with Jordan that we've never heard before because the Jordan that we've always known is a Jordan that's always been smooth right one thing about Jordan and I remember being in locker rooms with Michael Jordan and that is he would not speak unless he was fully dressed. Once he was fully dressed, he'd answer every good and bad question to anybody that was in that locker room. He was very media savvy in that regard. Dwayne Wade in recent vintage was more is like that as well. Very smooth, always attentive to the media's needs, but he had to get dressed first. But what he said at the Hall of Fame was totally different than we heard in locker room situations. If you hadn't seen Jordan play and didn't hear him with the press, you saw him in that documentary. Smooth with the media. He was great. And it hurts his peers today that he was great. Now, I know, like you know, that hate is a powerful word. Hate's really powerful. But I won't use the word hate here because we seem to throw it around because of the Dave Chappelle skits and We hear the word hate, so we just throw it around, but it's a powerful world. I won't say hate, but I will say that there is some jealousy there. There's some jealousy from some of the people that are unhappy with Michael Jordan's words. So what's interesting is, is that just from Jordan's words, he is as relevant today as he was when he was playing in the NBA. As we talk about Michael Jordan with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app, his biggest flop. Jordan. His biggest flop in his career is being the owner of the Charlotte Hornets franchise. His biggest victories is being the first NBA player to be a billionaire with a B billionaire and to win six titles. And that ghost of winning six titles in eight years is something that LeBron James and Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and Kyrie Irving and James Harden, Steph Curry, Dame Dollar, Giannis, all these other players are trying to attain and trying to chase that ghost of Jordan. Even Kobe, the late Kobe Bryant, tried to chase that ghost. It was hard to do that because Jordan played at such a high level. We know about the major on-court achievements. We've been through it before. You've seen it. The six-time NBA champion, the six-time NBA Finals MVP, six times. Every time the Bulls went to the Finals, he was the MVP. Well, I guess so, right? Five-time NBA Most Valuable Player, 14-time NBA All-Star, 10-time uh, NBA First Team Guy, NBA Defensive Player of the Year in 1988, 10-time NBA Scoring Champion, on and on and on. The accolades are great because we're talking about something that's great. But here's what's interesting. We talk about the relevance of Jordan, and it's so relevant that it wasn't just Horace Grant who came on and Company, and said that he thinks that this documentary is a so-called documentary and that there's lies up and down the documentary that is told by Michael Jordan from his viewpoint to the rumblings of ESPN's Scotty Pippen, where Scotty feels like he was wronged in the documentary. We haven't heard him on the record yet. We just keep hearing the rumblings and people around uh, Scotty's circle saying that Scotty is not happy with the documentary. Then comes Clyde the Glide Drexler. You knew this was going to come up, because you, if you're going to document the six championships and Jordan's career, and some of the Bulls on those teams, you've got to talk about all the championships, and the Bulls had to go through Portland to get themselves another championship. I liked Clyde Drexler as a player. I thought that he was did not get the respect that he deserved in the league. It's similar to Damian Lillard in some ways, right? You're in the Pacific Northwest, isolated in Portland, Oregon, and even though that place rocks, that that Moda Center rocks for years since 1977 when they won the championship. It's the only major sport in that uh, in that particular city of Portland, in that state of Oregon. The major are the major sports, and so Dame Dollar. We know he's a top five point guard in the NBA, but sometimes some people have to think about it. Even though we know how great he is, but being in Portland is a little bit different than being in Chicago, New York, Houston, Bay Area, uh, Dallas, and cities like that. But Clyde Drexler, I remember watching him and I thought, boy, he was really a terrific player. But I never thought that Clyde Drexler was on the same wavelength, the same plane as Michael Jordan. I always thought they were two different players. Like, yes, I know Clyde could get up. I know that he was a great player. I, I, But I never put him in the same wavelength, the same level as Jordan. And who is? Who was during that time? Point is, is that Clyde was just like a lot of terrific players in that era where you'd watch the games and you're like, wow. But the metric stick was always Jordan. It was always the Bulls. It was always Phil Jackson. It was always Pippen and Horace Grant and on and on and on, right? That was always the metric stick because the Bulls ruled the 90s. And Drexler was part of that era in which he had a lot of terrific games and a lot of wins. But couldn't I get to the mountaintop as good as that team was? So Drexler's name comes up in the documentary, right? And so Michael Jordan says that he heard from Clyde or or read someplace that Clyde Drexler believed that he was on the same level as good or better than Michael Jordan. And of course, Jordan throughout this documentary, almost became comedic at some, in some ways where the littlest slight Jordan needed to be able to motivate himself to push forward and to be able to win a game, win a series, win a championship, the littlest things. And so the Clyde, I never recall Clyde Drexler on the record saying that I believe I'm as good. Eric is the one who told me that, Um, that he he was searching and going through the articles and found it. I didn't know that at the time. But Clyde Drexler was on Sports Talk 790, and they finally found Clyde to get his thoughts on the documentary. So Clyde Drexler says, uh, of course, the documentary is from Michael Jordan's perspective.
1: That's Michael's documentary. Of course, obviously, it's going to be from his perspective. And uh, it, it was a golden era, and everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But let me tell you something: in that era, there are nothing but men—real men—who played. And a lot of times, guys didn't like each other from other teams. And so, what you see is a lot of, you know. But, but as you get older, you gotta you gotta get beyond all of that and show some love and some respect for the people you played with and against. And uh, and I'm hope I hope Michael is able to do that in his documentary. But he did not. <laughs> he, he did not.
0: You saw how Michael was interacting with Larry Bird. You saw how Larry, how Michael was talking about certain players and, and kind of just pushing them off. Like, Gary Payton wasn't that good defensively. I mean, the, the glove was the glove, but he wasn't that strong defensively. I was, he was never a bother to me. When I'm watching the games, he clearly was a bother to the Bulls because of how good he was defensively. Absolutely. Point is, though, is that Michael Jordan had his own viewpoint Of how he looked at his uh, opponents uh, back then. He was against all of them, you know? He was against all of them, and he wanted to make sure that he had a bone to pick with all those guys. That gave him the competitive edge. Also, Clyde Drexler on that same station, did he look at the finals? uh, Did he look at the finals at him? versus Michael Jordan, because that was a big um, talking point of is it Michael versus um, Clyde Drexler, and Clyde said
1: this is a team game, it's not it's not one guy, I mean, you could have 50 points and 40 rebounds, but if you lose, are you less of a player than anybody on the other team? No so it's a team game, so I hate when people act like it's an individual competition, if it was, we could really have some really, you you could quantify that, but in, in, in Portland, you know, we had a We had a team structure. I'm only going to get 15 or 20 shots a night. And other guys on my team sometimes took more shots than me. And so we had a team concept. My job was to score and get other people involved and make them better. And I did that very well by evidence we were in the finals. Obviously, I I, I think I had my same average in that final series that should have gone to seven. It was a closely contested six-game series, but it could have easily have gone to seven. And if it goes to seven, anything happens. But they were a better team. They won. Obviously, uh, nobody stopped anybody, but the better team won.
0: Yes, and that was the Chicago Bulls. So, along with Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen, now we can add Clyde Drexler to the mix of those that are not happy with Michael Jordan in this documentary. But here's the thing. Michael Jordan is ours. Chicago and the success of the sports teams have to be able to reach Jordan's standard as a winner understand this winning six championships in eight years is not easy there are some that will tell you in bar on bar stools uh, all over the city when we are able to go back and sit on bar stools there are people on bar stools all over the city that will tell you that man you know if Jordan didn't retire the Bulls could have been able to win eight championships in a row we don't know that we'll never know that because Jordan stepped away from the game but for the time that he's with the Bulls, from the beginning, by the way, even the bleak years of the Bulls, it was my pleasure as a fan to watch an all-time great. Remember, I'm a Gen Xer, so I saw Walter Payton, and I've seen Ryan Sandberg, and I've seen Frank Thomas, and I've seen Harold Baines, you know, and I've seen uh, Greg Maddox in his um, in his core as a player. As a, right when you take a look at Maddox, is how great he was. Right there, from the beginning all the way to the end of his career, I saw Maddox as a great pitcher, seen Dennis Savard, and seen some of the great players that played uh, in this city. But Jordan is the standard, the flag bearer for all of this. So what I want to ask you is this, and Eric, let's open the phone lines at 312-332-ESPN, three three two three seven seven six is our phone number. I want you to tell me whether or not, um, you see Michael Jordan differently since the documentary. It's been a little bit, but you hear Clyde Drexler and you've heard from Horace Grant here on the station and you've heard Scottie Pippen, not happy. Do you see Jordan differently since the documentary? Anything that when you hear Jordan and you heard what he had to say, do you view Jordan differently than you had before you saw the documentary? Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Because if you notice, it's trickling out every every week now. Someone has a story. All of a sudden now, people are not happy about how they were, uh, how they looked in the documentary. Well, the thing is, is that history is written by those that were the champions, and the Bulls and Michael Jordan were the champions. And again, this is from Jordan's viewpoint, not necessarily from some writer or some some director that is orchestrating the entire thing. Jordan's telling the stories. So tell me this based on what you saw from The Last Dance or what you know of Michael Jordan. Do you see Jordan differently now than you did before the documentary and your thoughts of what Clyde Drexler had to say? So, we'll take your phone calls coming up. 312 332 ESPN. 332 3776 is our phone number. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood.
2: Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood.
0: Follow on Twitter at TweetJ Hood. It's just not a Thursday. No, no, no. It's a throwback Thursday right here on Under the Hood. We got a special one for you guys who always do coming up at 8 o'clock. So, if you love the old school, we got something for you at 8 o'clock with Throwback Thursday uh, coming up at 8 o'clock right here on ESPN 1000. Great, great to have you in today. we got a lot to get to. Uh, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. Um want to get your thoughts about michael jordan after you've seen the documentary and, and it's so interesting to hear from former teammates like horace grant and Scottie pippen they're pissed at michael because michael is telling the truths based on what he uh, how he saw things and, and you knew that that was going to be the case and uh, my suggestion is for scotty and horace to get their own documentaries and tell what they what they think the truth is <laughs> you know um There's some things I'm sure that was edited out of that long documentary uh, that we saw every Sunday. Um, But there's some things there that were not necessarily complimentary to Michael that was kept in um, because I think he knows who he is. Uh, But then you get, as I played earlier, thoughts from Clyde Drexler. You know, Clyde Drexler is not happy because of how he's portrayed. Who's next? All I know is this, is that after watching the documentary, I knew that this guy michael jordan play with a ruthless aggression couldn't give no blanks to anybody his his own teammates sometimes and um the opposition because all he cared about was trying to win and trying to win championships and i know that maybe the way he went about it does not age well for some but i couldn't care less because i had a time of my life watching uh the bulls win championships uh, who, who's like that now Jimmy Butler's like that. Maybe I could throw Russell Westbrook in there like that, where they play with the ruthless aggression and they couldn't care less about feelings. I know it's 2020 and we're all caught up in feelings and tears and writing soliloquies on um, on Instagram about how you feel, getting in your feelings. But ultimately it's about being the best. And, and again, other people go about it differently, but Jordan went about it his way. So I didn't have a major problem with it. what do you think? Based on after all this has gone on, How do you view Michael Jordan? 312-332-ESPN is our phone number because he's royalty in this city when it comes to sports. Dan in Oak Brook with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Hey, Danny.
3: Hey, how are you? Nice to be with you. It's actually Oak Park. I want to be clear on that.
0: Okay, Okay. Oak Park, Dan. Thanks for checking in.
3: Thanks. Jonathan, good to be with you. What a fan I am. First-time caller. But um, I want to say this, that Michael Jordan – okay i'm more impressed and the reason i'm more impressed is because the chip on his shoulder that he had and he took into practice and into games you could almost call it a bully mentality and that is what he did to win and he win and he went you know and he was just incredible at that the other part of it was though he wasn't a good teammate and ultimately it cost him friendships and it makes me sad too you know there's just this emptiness that I think he could fill with some of those older players that cost him friendships, those championships, and the way he played and the way he talks about it. Ultimately, I think he's happiest right now playing golf with his buddies down in North Carolina.
0: I'm glad you checked in. I appreciate your phone call. Leave line open 312-332-ESPN is our telephone number. Um, I want to hear from Horace Grant, too, because that made some just big-time waves, right? Um, as far as the Jordan rules, so the Jordan rules book, um, it comes out from Sam Smith and there was this speculation in the documentary where Jordan accused Horace Grant of being the leak uh, of information to Sam uh, in that book. And so Horace Grant was asked directly, Hey, you know about this Jordan rules, were you the source for all the information?
4: That is a, a downright outright, completely lie, 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 lie. And, and, as I stated, if MJ had a grudge with me, let's settle, like man, let's talk about it, or we can settle settle it another way. But yet and still, he goes out and put this lie out that I was the source behind. Sam and I have always been great friends. We still great friends. But the sanctity of that locker room, I would never put anything personal out there. The the mere fact that. Sam Smith uh, was a investigator reporter that he had to have two sources two, to, to, uh, to, to write a book, I guess. Why would MJ just point me out? Okay. Right. That's, I mean, that, it, it, it's only a grudge, man. I'm telling you, it was only a grudge. And I think he proved that during this so-called documentary when, if you don't say something, if you say something about him, He's going to cut you off. He's uh, um, he's going to try to destroy your character. I mean, you know, Charles Barkley. They've been friends for over t- 20, 30 years, and he said something about uh, Michael's um, uh, management uh, with the Charlotte Bobcats or the Charlotte Hornets. Um, and then they haven't spoken since then. And my my fact is, my my point is that he calls. He said I was a snitch. But yet and still after thirty or uh, thirty five years, he brings up um his rookie year going into uh one of his teammates' room, which one of the teammates' room and saying coke and weed and women. My point is, why why in the hell did he want to bring that up? What what's that got to do with anything? I mean, if if you want to call somebody a snitch, that's a damn snitch right there
0: thoughts there from horace grant uh who was on um with david kaplan um interesting interesting because even now horace grant along with scotty pippen uh as as also now you can add on uh Clyde drexler they all are wondering like why was this all mentioned in the documentary you like this is you know who michael jordan is so this is not a surprise not a surprise um, and again, for for those that are looking to nitpick and try to find some salacious things out of this, I mean, I, again, this is from Jordan's standpoint, so I can be able to look at this and, and I can't say everything is fact, because I know everything is fact. Was there really a traveling cocaine circus with the Bulls? I heard stories, <laughs> so I can almost confirm that. I've heard that from several people that covered the team back then, sure. Um But it, it was interesting, right, just to watch that documentary. And once again... As we are talking about this here, uh, it, it, he just continues to stay relevant. All the things that Jordan has, has done in his career, all of the, the things that he sponsors, all the endorsements from McDonald's to Haynes to Chevy to Ballpark Franks to Air Jordans to Gatorade, you name it, he's put his face on it. And there's a reason why he's a billionaire, because he's been very successful, whether it's on the court or off the court. And there could be some jealousy there. I won't say hate, but there could be some jealousy there that Jordan got so much of the acclaim. But he deserved it because look at the numbers. I'm hoping that some of these Bulls that he played with or some of the the players that played against him understand that Jordan was great and he earned his way to those championships. He was part of the championship team, but it was his ruthless aggression that led the Bulls to be able to get that. But I just find it interesting. Like I can't wait to see later this week or next week who else is going to step out and say something about Jordan, and say that I didn't like the documentary, I like the way I was portrayed. Well, do something about it. Get yourself your own documentary and tell the real story. I'd love to hear it. 312-332-ESPN is our phone number. Um, Let's go to Brian in Naperville on ESPN 1000 with Jonathan Hood. Hey, Brian.
5: Hey, Jay Hood. Thank you for taking my call. I'm a big Yes, man. sir. Thank you. Uh, so um, I love the show, and I, I... – you, you made a comment about like the nineties and Jordan and like, and with no apologies, unapologetically loving the nineties. I I was the same way. It was, I'm not even a huge basketball guy. I'm more of a hockey guy, but it was a magical time. It was amazing. I had no apologies for how he, how he went about it. We wanted those championships. He wanted those championships. And so I was thinking there's a parallel uh, to like Wayne Gretzky. They're both kind of the goat of their sport. Right. And Gretzky, a lot of people, he was more quiet and subdued um, off to the ice. Um, And there's not as much reporting on it. But he was an absolute dominant force in the locker room. He was like Jordan was, like a taskmaster. Like, if you mess up, he's going to let you know about it. Even if it was Messier or, you know, monsters on that team. He was making, you know, his, his voice was heard. And he was an absolute, you know, dominant, you know, monster in there yeah and so so i i i I have no problem with anything that Jordan did in order to win those championships. I loved it I loved the ride, and I know you did too and i'll just uh I'll hang up and, well, and listen to it well then hold on oh, before, no, you, before you yeah. leave
0: before you leave sure. i want mm-hmm. let me just let me just tamp down a little bit on Gretzky and talk to you about him for a second sure. because yeah. because quite frankly that should be the next documentary or one oh, of the next ones but here but here's what I want to know right watching Gretzky's career because and he started off uh in the nhl in 1979 80 as a 19 year old mm-hmm. with edmonton right so yeah. the story that i want to know about him and he's like uh, for our generation like the greatest right and there's a reason why he's yeah. a great one right mm-hmm. that 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 transition from edmonton to to the kings that's something that i would love to know like how does edmonton allow him to go and there was a lot of uh red tape in that where he goes from Edmonton. Uh, you can call it a small market now in the, in the National Hockey League and compare that to Los Angeles. I know L.A. is a big market. I'd love to know that transition because that sends shockwaves for a guy that was a constant, you know, big trophy winner, all-star, uh, Stanley Cup winner, and then he goes to the Kings. That, I want to know that, about that story too.
5: That, to me, is the ultimate trade, like the biggest trade that I can think of. Um, I'm, I'm trying to run through it in my mind. That's the biggest tra- trade I've ever seen happen. Uh, it was a monster. It, it devastated Edmonton. I mean, there were people crying in the streets. It was, it was huge. Um, so, yeah, that would be an, uh, an amazing documentary. I would tune in just as hard as I did for this last one.
0: Brian, we need to put that on the list, man. We need to tell the people <laughs> from 30 for 30 because I'm interested. I want to know <laughs> yeah. like, how, does, how did Edmonton pretty much could have just folded up, man, after that because he was yeah. the draw. And then he goes, and he, I mean, he gave them everything, the Oilers, right? He gave them every blood, sweat, and tears, and everything else, and they had successful teams. But then he goes to the Kings, and it's just like, well, that didn't do anything for Canada from the league. He goes to L.A., right. it didn't oh. seem like the same guy. So that's, that's something that we're going to send an email off and see if we can get a, a, cause <laughs> you know it. Because he deserves it, man. He's the yeah. greatest. <laughs> yes, that'd be great, Jay Hood. Brian, thanks so much for checking in, man. Thank you for taking my call. Three one two three three two ESPN three three two three seven seven six is our phone number. See, that's another one, Eric. See, we got we got the greatest in basketball. Now we got to get the greatest in hockey. Like now, now that can light a fire under the National Hockey League if you have something about
6: Gretzky and his life. And I know even less about that story. Like I know even I know how great he was, but like mm-hmm. him in the locker room, like I'd love to see him getting at Messier and having Messier talk about that because Messier is an all time great. But he wrote him like that'd be super interesting. And then, like he said, that trade, that would be I'd, I'd be drawn in because I don't know that story very well at all. I see, that, that's it.
0: So here we are, man, in 2020, filmmakers, while we're going through this pandemic, educate us. You know, put some out there for us to be able to watch that. That's something that needs to be out there for all of us to see, because there's some things I don't know about it either. Clearly, I I remember the trade, but I like to know what the inner workings are, what people were saying. And that's what that makes a good documentary. Just remember the, the standard for these documentaries, Eric, all the way to the top. The standard is the OJ in America. Uh, that's a
6: great one i like um it's old it doesn't need to be remade but it's the ali one it's uh when we were when we were kings i believe it's called that one to me is still incredible yeah, see, there's, there's, you know,
0: there's some things that still need to to be told. Some stories that need to be told. Uh, we got some open phone lines for you. You want to jump in? Three one two, three three two ESPN, three three two three seven seven six. Our phone number. If you're on hold, you will be on the air. I want to get your thoughts on how you look at Michael Jordan now, because you got Clyde Drexler saying some things. You heard from Horace Grant, also Scotty Pippen. Do you view the greatest basketball player to ever play in a Bulls uniform differently? after the documentary because these three they have an issue also still to come in this half hour we'll talk about what's going on with baseball um as far as if baseball's returning and also some thoughts from tom ricketts um tom ricketts the owner of the cubs doing what he can to be able to hold on to every dollar apparently uh over at clark and addison so we'll get into that as well in this half hour on under the hood this
4: is chicago's home for sports
0: Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app.
4: You're listening to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000.
0: Throwback Thursday coming your way at 8 o'clock right here on ESPN 1000. The
7: Throwback.
0: Uh, We'd love to to give you something on Throwback Thursday, something special. So make sure you get your uh, dialing finger ready. I got something special for you for Throwback Thursday right here on ESPN 1000. So here we are another day, and we do not know when the players and the owners will be able to come back together. Here's the thing just as simple as i can put it because it's so layered with so many different um machinations of what owners are saying and players are saying and there's a lot of different opinions out there and i am just telling you that i know that the owners have money they are pretending like they're completely broke and they can't uh, they're so destitute that they can't be able to take care of the players. My idea has always been to have an 82 game season and to tell the players and guarantee the players that at some point they will be paid, um, but we're gonna have to defer the payment, but you will be paid with interest. That way that should be solved. Now, if the players don't agree with that, that's one thing, but it's just been going back and forth as far as the negotiations where, you know, now players are digging in saying, well, if you're going to prorate our contracts, uh, then we want to play more than 82 games. Let's play a, let's play 100 if we can. And so you know that's going to be off the table from the owner's standpoint. But we know that there is a, a stark difference between the small market and big market teams. But it doesn't mean they're completely broke. There are different ways if the owners are broke. If they are hemorrhaging money, if they're having a hard time being able to find some kind of revenue stream, there is a way for owners to be able to borrow that money. Uh, millionaires know other millionaires and no banks and know uh, those that are in the know to be able to help teams uh, financially. Uh, and so the idea that the owners as a whole, all of them, won't at least consider that It's just complete BS. The players have a lot to risk here. The players, uh, they could go out and risk being in this Petri dish with all these other teams in this one city. Whether it's in Phoenix or Orlando, whatever they're trying to determine, you know there's going to be a lot of teams sequestered in one spot. This whole thing with COVID-19 is so messed up, though. You know it is because, like, Toronto can't play at home. Canada shut down. They have to play in Dunedin, Florida, where they have their spring training if they're going to play. They can't play in their home stadium. But yet the uh, the governor of Texas has opened up the state where they said, oh, you want to do sporting events? 25% capacity. That means the Rangers, if they want to play at home, they can. They have the advantage. It won't be a full stadium, but it'll be 25%, according to what the governor of Texas said earlier today on the news. So it's just As a baseball fan, it is so freaking frustrating that these two sides, in their time, by the way, May 28th, this is their time. They have the spring and summer to be able to lead us into football, and they can't come up with something. Jeff Passon was on Waddle and Sylvie and talked about the negotiation to where they are right now. You know, oddly enough, I think this is settling in.
7: (laughs) I think we're getting to the point. Where where they now have staked out their positions and they both realize that they're going to be worse for the wear if there are no games played this season and they're going to end up getting to a point where where they have mutually agreed. Now, it is more tenuous than uh, than probably I would have expected and more tenuous than uh, I would have anticipated at this point, particularly like. I mean, it was it was the anchorman boy that escalated quickly yesterday when Max Scherzer came out and uh, tweeted that the owners can essentially go kick rocks the day after they came with an economic proposal that insulted and aggrieved players. And that reaction was pretty widespread and uh, came out very forcefully in Max Scherzer's tweet.
3: What is the root right now of the biggest issue?
7: The root of the biggest issue is that in a time where there is massive unemployment in a time where 40 million people do not have jobs, that rich people can't figure out how to split up a bunch of money. That that's what it comes down to. And, and listen, uh, you, you may sympathize with the owners. You may sympathize with the players. You go and do you, but in the end, if there are no baseball games played this season, it comes down to both sides. It, it, it just does, and, and that is that is something I think that uh, that needs to be recognized. That there are two parties involved here, and uh, while one certainly seems to be trying to aggrieve the other, uh, and, and that's the you know the owners wanting to significantly cut player salaries. Uh, the the players also need to understand that uh, there's a, a partnership that could exist here in an ideal world uh, one that is mutually beneficial and that if they don't come back this season uh, the the risk of, of poisoning your fan base for a long time to come is incredibly high and and that's why you know that has, that has what uh, that is what has from the beginning given me faith that there were going to be games played this year. But I, you know, I got a I got a text from someone last night who is uh, a little more skeptical than I am, and, and and he said, you know, this idea that of course they're going to play the season and figure it out because there's too much at stake. Uh, he said, no, the the owners care about winning. They care about winning and their desire to win right here in the short term, they believe will benefit and behoove them even more longer term than playing this season would, which is a very cynical point of view to take. But one that's backed up with the idea that there are some owners out there uh, who believe that playing this year is, is not something that they want to do. And, and that, that is what, ultimately could imperil this thing more than anything
0: so there you have it from jeff passing who covers major league baseball for espn.com under the hood with jonathan hood on espn 1000 and the espn chicago app see i mean so Passons hearing it from sources and we continue to read this thing it's just like you and i are just on the sidelines just waiting just waiting to see when baseball will return And, and here here is the thing Even if you're not the biggest baseball fan, the point is, is that there's a sport that's not happening. And as he just laid out for you, while many are unemployed, while many are trying to figure out how they're going to be able to survive from one paycheck to the other, from one bill cycle to the other, here are the millionaires and billionaires can't come together on the millions of dollars that are out there. They can't find a way to get this done. And to me, it seems like this is for the, not for the short term, but for the long haul, just so uh, the owners can say, okay, so we got you now, but this is going to be something that you're going to have to deal with for the long term. We got you. The owners want to be able to win, but ultimately the fans are left on the side of the road. And I think that that is the thing that is so disappointing the most here we are in May and there's no baseball because both sides cannot be able to put, put it together. Um, let's hear from Trevor Bauer, Eric, because Trevor Bauer has um, been outspoken, just like uh, a number of Major League Baseball players, that are giving us just a little taste of what the negotiations have been. So Bauer, uh, Major League Baseball is leaking info to apply public pressure to divide the union and force a deal.
2: This is so consistent with what MLB does. It's a, like it's a short-term cash grab, and I guess I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that. They're worried about the bottom line this year, which is fair, business owners aren't in business to take big losses, you're in business to make money and baseball's business, I get that side of it. But the overall health of your industry also matters. And so when you do stuff like this, and the whole tactic of negotiating through the media and leaking stuff through the media, the intent is to put pressure on players to cave, public pressure for them to take less and get out there and play, and we've heard a lot about it. You know, just take whatever they give you and get out there and play like you owe it to the country. People need baseball, we want baseball back. We need a distraction, we're going through tough times. A bunch of people are laid off right now. And those, are, those things are all true. But the act of negotiating through the media, all this stuff's gonna have to go on behind closed doors anyway. They're gonna have to sit down and talk and figure it out behind closed doors. The act of leaking this stuff to the media is to put public pressure from the fan base on the players, to position the players as the greedy ones that are trying to get all their money while everybody else is out of work, which isn't at all what's going on, we just want to be treated fairly, but then it's meant to position the fans against the players and get a little feud going on there. And now this most recent one is to position fans against players and players against players. That is terrible for the overall long-term health of the game. He's right,
0: Trevor Bauer talking there, but see, Trevor Bauer does not wear a white hat in this situation. The owners and the players both have black hats, and they're both got their guns on each other, trying to figure out who's going to blink first. And and just it, this is so similar to lockouts or labor issues or strikes that we've gone through. If you know, the longer baseball is away, uh, there is no. There is no baseball home run chase that's going to be able to springboard the sport back into uh, into popularity like it did with Sosa and Maguire. See, I lived through the '94 strike and it sucked all summer without any baseball, especially when. The White Sox came off of winning a division in 1993 and thinking that they could be able to carry that momentum into maybe going further in the playoff. That could have been White Sox Expos in 94 because those are the two hottest teams uh, in 94 amongst the hottest teams in 94. Uh, and then the strike happened. So you know that's that will always be a pain in my side because I thought that that team was talented enough to just keep going with Bo jackson and and um and some of the great players on that ninety three team but nonetheless, the point is, is that it's it's so disappointing that these two sides cannot come together um I'll take your phone calls on this I see you in Lamont I'll get to your phone call and uh more three one two three three two e s p n three three two three seven seven six is our telephone number just just if you're a baseball fan, this is not good, right? It, it feels like both sides are are even going further and further apart. Uh, so I'd love to get your reaction to that. And don't forget, it is a throwback Thursday. Got something special for you coming up at 8 o'clock right here on UTH.
2: It's under the hood. Follow us on the
0: gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. Throwback Thursday coming up at 8 o'clock right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Let's go to Al in Lamont. He's been holding patiently on ESPN 1000 with Jonathan Hood. What's up, Al?
8: Hey, Jay Hood. Um, I'm going to give you a perspective that nobody's talked about. I'm not on anybody's side. I just want baseball back. I can care less. Let them all make millions. But why not use logic in the sense of, obviously, if they come back this year, everybody's going to watch. Well, why not just for this year renegotiate the TV deals with ESPN, Comcast, all these local networks, too, instead of playing reruns of old games from 93 and 84 and whatever, and allocate that money against, uh, uh, you know, uh, equally to both players and owners? And that should kind of really fix the issue, I think, if they can just do that. Because, really, I mean, that's the only fix that I can think of. Ultimately, somebody's going to lose, but maybe this is a win-win for both, and it wins-win for the TV networks who are dying for something to put on TV. I just have not heard that theory, and I just want to see what you think.
0: I see you. I understand your point, and I appreciate your your telephone call. I just think that, you know, when it comes to um, when it comes to all of this um, from a television standpoint, look, I mean. <laughs> everything is about a negotiation i'm just thinking about as you said that i was thinking about what the owners would say right from the what, what would the owners say to that well of course they would say no to it the players i'm sure would be amenable to what you just said but i'm thinking about the from the owner's standpoint what they'd say and it's kind of like now they they would uh they would find a way to to uh, look at that situation and say no we we're not going to deal with that not surprising though everything's a negotiation so I, i'm not surprised al this is where we are now in 2020 it's so selfish, just amazing. Both sides can't be able to come up with the right money um, to be able to come up with, at least for this year. Three one two three three two. espn is our phone number. Pete is with us on ESPN 1000. Hey, Peter.
3: Hey, how you doing? See, I got to d- disagree with Trevor Bauer. He says in the long term, it's going to hurt. In 10 years, Max year Scherzer ain't going to be around. Bauer won't be around. None of the Cubs on their roster will be around. But the Ricketts are still going to own the Cubs.
0: Yeah. So, what's the ultimate point?
3: The ultimate point is the owners don't need the players in, in this. In this next year, the players need to make their money now.
0: So, you, if you're the owners, you just keep digging in, right? You just hold yes. out as long so as possible. Yes.
3: yes. So, you got to realize the owners have to. All the players have to do is have to worry about their wife and kids and their family, right? Right. The owners have to worry about everybody that works at Wrigley fields, everybody that works at, at the Arizona at their uh, summer thing. All, the, all their other employees. They have hundreds of employees to worry about. They have to pay the electric bill there, Wrigley. The insurance there. The, the players have nothing to worry about with that. They have to worry about the roof over their head and their family. I'm, I'm pro for
0: the owners. All right, my friend, I'm glad you checked in, appreciate your phone call. I just say that it's really, to me, it's on both sides because you cannot negotiate just on one, one level. Uh, it's got to be the owners and the players to be able to get that done. You're right from the owner standpoint. Yeah, they can dig in. They are claiming that they don't have money. Um, sure. The owners have money. They just don't have the same revenue stream uh, that they would have if baseball was in place. So you're saying that, Hey, hold up the, uh, hold up the players. Well, Eric, that's one way to look at it, right? I mean, to me, it's on both sides if they can't get it done. But if you are a player, the player is the one that has the inherent risk during this COVID-19 to play, to be away from their family, and to play for less because they won't be able to get the salary that they've been looking for.
6: Right. Like, for example, Frank McCourt, who owned the Dodgers, um, had to go bankrupt and had to sell the team. He was He was kind of run through the mud about how broke he was. And then he sold the Dodgers for $2 billion. So any of these owners who are crying poor, then just flip your team. Because you're going to be just as rich as you, like richer than you could imagine at that point. So the, the owners have no, nothing other than just digging in. The players, like you said, it's short term. They need to get their money now. Yeah,
0: man. Well, you know what? We're going to st- stop the labor talk until we hear from Jesse coming up in about an hour from now. Because you know what it is, Eric. You know it's Thursday, right? oh yes it's a throwback thursday we have
1: something special for you on throwback thursday next in two minutes on uth